Which is the number one chocolate drink? Two pizzas for the price of one. I taste so wonderful. That's a spicy meat. Why is it important for people to know about food? The benefits of eating a diverse variety of foods are extraordinary. Food is a way of talking about all of those things and way more. It's about everything. Welcome to The Secret Ingredient, a podcast where we explore the human condition through food. With food writers Raj Patel and Tom Philpot, and me, Rebecca McEnroy. We won't tell you what to eat, but we will tell you how it got on your plate. Stay with us. Sugar. Oh, honey, honey. Sugar is obviously a huge source of calories in the United States. And a lot of it is liquid. A lot of it comes through through soda. And it's obviously been associated with a whole raft of health problems. And so it's a, it's a very interesting topic. It's a very big part of our of our diet, but the question of where it came from, how it became this ubiquitous product, historically in human history, it's been a very precious thing, sugar. I mean, we were literally robbing honeybee nests to get this blast of sucrose in, in centuries past. And how we get from this precious thing to this ubiquitous commodity is a very interesting story. And the man who wrote the book on that called Sweetness and Power is Sidney Mintz. It's the kind of book where every page you want to highlight something. Um, the, the, the prose is lucid and clear. And in, in many ways, he was the, the sort of gateway drug for me uh, into taking food very seriously. Um, in, in the history of anthropology, there, there, there have been sort of seminal works on food. And um, if you think of Claude Lévi-Strauss's The Raw and the Cooked, for example, I mean, that, that's, uh, that, that's a kind of... A, um, a huge moment in thinking about um, anthropology and the, the way anthropologists approach food. And what Sid does is make um, our modern world strange. And that's that's what anthropology should do. And that's why his title, Sweetness and Power, is so useful, because he takes us from thinking about honey all the way through to thinking about high fructose corn syrup and to thinking about artificial sweeteners. And that huge arc from, again, you know, r robbing honey nests to dropping this strange white cancerous powder and into coffee instead of using sugar, that's an arc that he helps to cover and helps us see the world in completely different ways. And so, yes, sugar is our secret ingredient today, but much more than that, the, the secret ingredient is the, that history of sweetness, and there's no better man to talk about it than Sidney Mintz. Anthropologist Sidney Mintz began his career in the 1940s in Puerto Rico, looking at the single food, sugar. In this edition of The Secret Ingredient, we talk with Dr. Mintz about his life, the legacy he hopes to leave behind, and the sordid past, present, and future of sweetness. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of why you went to Puerto Rico and some of your early conversations about what you wanted to learn and why you were there and what was really inspiring you at the time? Yeah. Uh, Puerto Rico was chosen for us. We students did not choose the field of study. Puerto Rico was chosen for us by the teacher who organized our research. His name was Julian Stewart. And the purpose of his work was to have several students simultaneously study major economic uh, bases, communities, uh, that provided major economic bases for the society's functioning. And so one of us studied a coffee-producing area, another a tobacco and minor crop area, and uh, so on. 
I got interested in sugar, but it was only after I got into the field and could get to know a number of people who cut sugar cane and loaded it and ground it and did all those other things until I got a community where I could work. I really didn't know much about it. And as I learned about it, it seemed to me a subject that deserved very careful study because its production was so widespread. It was globally widespread and had been for centuries. And it was produced overseas, not in the metropolises like Europe. And it was the, one of the very first things to be shipped from a tropical area outside Europe itself to become a basic commodity for masses of people. It wasn't ivory or myrrh or frankincense or any of those right. things. It was an everyday necessity in the lives of millions of people the world around. And this was all done in tropical areas, at least until the 1830s, when beet sugar became practical economically. And so I found that I had really stumbled upon an ancient food and one that had a special history. And, of course, I became fascinated by that history. I wanted to know how that had happened so early in the record and why it had become so successful. Well, uh, Sydney, this is uh, Raj Patel, and I'm uh, curious then, given that you found yourself in a sugar plantation, why you titled your book Sweetness and Power rather than Sugar and Power. Because I think I could say for two reasons. First of all, because uh, sweetness is more widespread. In other words, sugar is simply one form of sweetness. And there are other forms of sweetness, the most important and most ancient of which being honey, of course, which human beings don't manufacture. Bees manufacture it, but humans steal it, as do their simian relatives. And I was interested in why this commodity, why it had become a commodity, why this food was so widespread, and why the desire for it was so intense. Um, And I think that... This was why I wanted to fit sucrose, which is the major sugar that that we consume. I wanted to fit its story within the more general story of sweetness, which I think has to do with our primate nature. So that's why I called it sweetness rather than sugar and power. Dr. Mintz, um, can you tell us what the what it was like in the sugar fields at that time like what was the the structure so the people living in the village were they migrants who came from somewhere else no to no 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 they no 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 it's very different from that pattern there the sugar has not really for a very long time in the, the western production of sugar sugar has not depended on people who came and went except in its more marginal cases. Um, Sugar has depended traditionally on populations that were either forced or enslaved to form villages on the outskirts of the fields of production or within plantation communities. And the plantation is an extremely old agrarian institution, and it became overseas and... uh, Western run beginning as early as, oh, 
I don't know, the beginning of the 16th century. So it's a very old plantation commodity, probably the oldest. And these people were not migrants. Their parents had done the same as they, and their grandparents had done the same as they. And um, many of them were descended and recently descended from enslaved people. And that would be true in the south of the United States, in Jamaica, and Martinique, and all over the place. And so they weren't migrant people. They were settled people. The only life they'd known has been a, been a, a landless life. Uh, where you begin to find variants on this is where, after emancipation, uh, people who had been slaves begin to get land and can become peasants. But uh, that's, that's a later stage in the history of that commodity. So in, in this show, we're trying to sh- tell something about the secret histories of a range of ingredients. And we wanted to talk about sugar in part um, because we, we, we know that the people will expect us to say, oh, didn't you know that sugar is bad for you and that it, it'll cause all kinds of horrible things? And aren't the, isn't the food industry nasty yeah. for sneaking it into our ingredients? But what we love yeah. about sweetness and power and the work that you've done, and it's opened our eyes in so many ways, is precisely to show how the food system and and the modern world itself is premised has sugar as a really interesting fulcrum but one of the other things mm-hmm. that you've talked about is the very idea of industrial agriculture and of factories in the fields and i wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how um, in in your book you talk about the the sort of three things that really make industrial agriculture industrial and you talk about discipline and the separation of um, production from consumption and the separation of the worker from their tools I wonder if you can talk yes. e- explain to someone who you know is listening to this and maybe expecting us to talk about sugar and diabetes and how horrible the food industry is and if you could perhaps explain to them that before we think about any of that stuff we should think about how the food industry itself is premised on the idea of the techniques honed in the manufacture of sugar yes well um People assume that sugar is intrinsically desirable. I do think that in the history of evolution, the way that sugar became attached to human beings is interesting. as the need, the desire for sweetness, the liking for sweetness. I think that if it's true that it's built in, then that, that's very interesting. We know that among mammals, not all mammals have it, even though mother's milk is sweet in the case of us humans. Cats don't seem to have it. But, of course, they're predators. They live on meat. And that, that's been studied quite carefully by a man who just retired as the head of the Monell Census Center in, in Philadelphia. Gary Beecham studied big cats and found that they didn't give a damn about sweetness. <laughs> but uh, lots, of, lots of mammals do. And uh, primates very definitely, um, all, almost I think all of the big apes uh, like it. But of course, that desire can be encouraged in various ways when sweetness is combined with hotness and fatness when you take dough and bake it and it rises and you coat its outsides with sweet stuff so it's hot and sweet and soft it's very desirable we say as if that were natural and in some sense i do think it is in other words i think there is a built-in primate desire for sweet things and it may have to do with the fact that early primates were mostly herbivores and lived in trees, well, not surprisingly, and probably sweetness was a, a clue or a sign 
of ripeness in fruit. So we have this this picture of um, a clever animal uh, that has built-in tastes and is constantly striving to satisfy them. And then they hit upon this, as it was called by Alexander's generals when they reached India, this great reed, which when you break it open, has sweet liquid, and when it's boiled down and hardened, it's a sweet stuff like honey. And uh, so sugar supplanted in some important way with a mass-produced product that we manufactured. Of course, we don't make sucrose. The plant makes sucrose and by photosynthesis, but we squeeze out its juice and harden it. And we say refine it, which means to take all the molasses out to make it white. And it becomes a commodity, and people all around the world like it. Now, some like it more than others. So there is this liking, which seems to be built in. And then there is this added-on business about uh, how how much better it would be if we could have it on everything. <laughs> Not only with our breakfast cereal, but also with our... Um, our donuts and our, and not only with our donuts, but with our salad dressing, and not only with our salad dressing, and so on and so on, so that this is a taste that can be encouraged and um, enhanced by new forms, and so it's something that can be built upon. And I think that somewhere in this story, probably by the 18th century it was clearly recognized by many people that if people liked a little of it, they would like even more a lot of it. (laughs) And the supply was inexhaustible. You didn't have to hire 50 billion bees to get it. All you have to do is carry some people in chains across the ocean to produce it. And when it came to its production, this form of organization worked itself out because... The thing about sugarcane is that when it's ripe, you've got to cut it. Otherwise, it begins to dry out again. <laughs> when it's highest in sugar, you've got to get the sugar out of it. So once it's cut, it has to be ground. So it must be cut when it's ready, and then it must be ground when it's cut. And the only way to do that is to tie the field to the factory. And to have discipline to make people work till they're dead so that this stuff can be turned into sugar before it becomes vinegar. If I can indicate uh, another dimension of it, it is now estimated that in the course of the slave trade, about 16 million Africans were brought to the New World or at least in chains with that intention. And of those 16 million about 9 million survived as far as the first year of work in the New World. 9 million. Wow. Those 9 million powered, more than anything else, the sugar plantations in the New World, beginning as early as 1530, 1520, as early as that, under the Spaniards. Sugar was brought to the New World by Columbus in 1493. 
uh, first sugar made and shipped to Seville was 1516. And this little business ended in Brazil in 1888. Uh, when you think of the time, not only its length, but the time when they were tying people down and shipping them in the holes of ships, they had ships big enough to pack these people in side by side. You think of it beginning in 1516 and ending in 1888, all the while everybody is beating his brow and saying, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. You can see that this was a very important, it was the largest demographic lever in the history of the New World up until the 1850s. Slavery worked because people were taken far enough away from where they came from that if so that if they ran away, they couldn't get very far. There was no place for them to go. They weren't at home. They weren't like people being exploited at home. It's not like uh, the British in India or things of that sort. Uh, this is a case where you move people away from everything they know, everybody they know, every skill that they have. And um, so it's it, that decisive break, I think, is important in making slavery work. The, the the world in which slavery and sugar were linked has a, a, a sort of modern analogue. And I, I wonder if you could tell us the story about Britain's relationship to slavery, because uh, today a lot of people are interested in ethical consumerism and they want their um, their food to be made in a fair trade way so that the workers aren't exploited. Um, Britain had uh, ostensibly a dim view of slavery. Uh, and yet, mm-hmm. as you as you recount in the book, um, th- th- this was a, a rather two-faced view, where on the one hand, Britain uh, wasn't uh, uh, engaging in slavery per se, but but it but it was in another way. And I wonder if you could explain that a little bit. In certain parts of the world where slavery had been a standard practice for a century or more, uh, after it ended, the planters did their best to maintain the same social relationships that they had had before. Uh, They wanted to have a labor force that was as defenseless as the slaves, even without slavery. And uh, the answer to that was migrant labor that was contracted. Well, in the case of the Caribbean, uh, the two places that provided that, the main two places that provided that contracted labor uh, were China and India. And in the case of these two places, it's important to notice that one of them was already colonial, was a colony of, of a major power, and most of those Indians who were contracted went to places that were British colonies. And the Chinese, of course, that were imported, um, came from a place, the government of which was quite in, incapable of defending its own citizens overseas. So they selected populations uh, that could not be defended by their governments and that could not defend themselves. And so they could uh, reproduce to some extent the very same conditions that had been made slavery successful when that was a major form of exploitation. Um, the biggest importer of, of Chinese was Cuba. 
There were about 100, between 135 and 150,000 Chinese that went, went there with contracts. The contracts were, of course, not worth the paper they were written on. They were no good anyway. Uh, I have one of those contracts hanging on my wall. Hmm. And uh, the, the people who, who went to um, uh, the British colonies, the Indians who went main, mainly to Trinidad, but also to, uh, uh, to British Guiana, and a few Indians even to Martinique and Guadeloupe. Um, those people also were completely defenseless legally in every way, so that they're being free. Uh, in other words, they're not being slaves. was not much protection. So those labor conditions could be perpetuated, at least to some extent, for an additional half century. Sid, I wonder if, if you could talk us through the way that sugar went from a luxury in Europe enjoyed by just a few people to suddenly in the 19th century in England, getting back to Raj's question, in the 19th century England, it emerges at, at a certain point as a staple of the working class. And just sort of talk us through how that happened and, and how that worked. Well, when it first got to England, first boat to carry it to England was around 13... I don't remember, in, in the 14th century sometime. First boat that got there, I think from Venice. And sugar was known in Western Europe for a while, but only as a kind of rarity. And, um, the um, Moors, as people like to call them, brought it to Spain around uh, 750, and they began to plant sugar. Uh, southern coast of Spain is the only place in, the, in Europe where you can grow sugar grow sugarcane and, and make sugar if you want to um, on the, in continental Europe. Uh, they had been long growing it in the islands of the Mediterranean. But it was scarce and not well known and of interest and all that sort of stuff in Europe um, after the dates I've suggested, middle of the 8th century for Spain and 14th century for Britain, um, it only begins to become available in the 18th century. Uh, and it, I did most of my reading on England because that seemed to me the most important case for what I wanted to explain. Um, I don't really know the story for Europe. And, and incidentally, one of the um, really dreadful omissions from the book I don't deal at all with Asia, where sugar was produced by entirely different means and with different consequences. But in, in Europe, it's only really around 1750 that sugar begins to be um, a food that might be within the reach of working people. And 1800, when it begins to be consumed in large quantities. Um, its history is understandable, I think, if we compare it to, I don't know, caviar or truffles or, you know, some other delicacy of this kind, because uh, consuming it um, before 1750 was a way of um, showing off. And it was shown off by kings and archbishops and the kind of people that were able to afford it. Um, some idea of how it changed, I think that, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, I'm sure, because I don't remember it that well, but um, one of the British kings 
in the 13th century writes to the mayor of Winchester and says, I would like two pounds of Alexandrian sugar if so much can be had at one time. <laughs> uh, that's not the way you expect kings to address mayors, but um, that does give you an idea of how precious this stuff was. And, and I have said that when it came to making objects of spun sugar, if you can imagine a Bentley made out of sugar that you have carried into your banquet after the banquet is over for people to admire and then invite them to break pieces off and eat it. Um, it probably would cost as much as a Bentley to have a Bentley of sugar uh, available that way, but it's a, an indication of its preciousness. And it becomes common, popular, uh, intensely desirable when it's combined with the three stimulant drinks that reach Europe about the same time. They, they're, 16th century is right for coffee, tea, and chocolate. That is the mass consumption of them. Um, and when combined with them, you get this intense sweet taste combined with a stimulant, with a psychotropic stimulant. Um, oh, my, that was lovely stuff. And the first pause that refreshed was not Coca-Cola. It was uh, tea and sugar in England and or tea or coffee and, and, and sugar in some places like France. Um, so that this became the the drink of choice and uh, the whole uh, uh, temperance movement in England is uh, quite lovely because it was uh, managed largely by the clergy and uh, it talked, it created the tea garden and of course teetotaling and tea time and all these good things about family and straight living uh, because Working people had gotten into the habit of getting up on Monday morning hungover and falling into their machines and getting their arms cut off, and it was very bad for production. And when they were able to get them all to drink tea instead, it was a marvelous, uh, marvelous advance. Um, and I think that this process of percolation downward uh, from rarity and precious good to everyday necessity commonplace on every table, uh, that kind of process says something about the way that uh, capitalism has imagined the world, the very world that it was creating, how it was able to see along the way what the possibilities were um, there was a time, after all, when there were foods that only the king was allowed to eat. But when sugar came along, the king was very happy to forego it just in return for what people would spend to have it. Um, and I, I think that it's a... I say in the last page of that book that the first cup of sweetened tea drunk by a British worker was a, a, a historic event, and I think it's true. It marked a change in the way people saw each other, and, uh, and, it's, and it's worth remembering. So you begin the book not with words, but with a picture, with William Blake's yes. uh, picture yes. of Europe supported by uh, 
Africa and America. The question I have is about a politics around that. What do you think is a, an appropriate restitution for that, given the world that we live in now? I, I'm, I, I'm curious, in other words, about the politics that you think we should be embracing, given everything that we learn about the way that the world has been created through sugar and through slavery and through colonialism. What's the payback? Well, yeah. I mean, what's next? What what should have? What do you want to see? I mean, not, not this is asking you not as an anthropologist, but as someone who has witnessed and studied uh, the consequences of this. What do you think? What do you want? Well, I guess most of all, I would like more coming to terms with what happened. Um, that that's the beginning. I think uh, there's a, a a black writer in the United States. He's actually Baltimore born. Uh, who calls himself Tenehisi Coates, who has written about um, restitution. And uh, I think that that's not the final chapter. That's not the what needs to be done. I think what needs to be done is for uh, all of my fellow citizens in this country to understand what happened and to be able to say this is what was done, and now we must think about how to make the playing field level for all of us in this country and, and by some means for all of us eventually in the world because we can't continue to live by ignoring that past. Um, that's what, what occurs to me first. Uh, I think to think about it in political terms is difficult, um, I don't have a vocabulary even for that. But I think that until, uh, I mean, when, when I think of what happens around us, what happened in the town in which I live, in Baltimore, just a few weeks ago, when I think of events like that or what happens in Charleston, I think, God almighty, uh, we're living in the dark ages. People don't understand anything about their own past. Um that's the beginning, and I don't know really even how we do that, but at least I can say it. Um, I think that's where we start. We try to educate ourselves and others to the past, that, what people endured because of us, and, and, and to try to make amends at least by acknowledging it. We don't even do that. Yeah. Uh, one of the difficulties in this country, of course, as I think you probably know, is that when you say to many of our fellow citizens, uh, what about this? Don't you think this is wrong? They, they are likely to explain to me that, no, their parents came from Italy or you know, somewhere else, and after all, it's not their problem. They're not responsible. And I think that um, if we can't get beyond that, then we can't get anywhere. Yeah. After, you know, working as an anthropologist for, for so long and understanding the human experience at such depth, what would you like to leave behind about your understanding of humanity for generations to come? I have a lot of former students who are still teaching anthropology. And uh, I had a lot of students, particularly at Yale, but also here at Hopkins, who uh, became went on in something else, but courses with me and um, that's the best thing I ever did that's the most important thing I ever did 
much more important than anything I ever wrote. Um, I think that having some um, useful, illuminating influence over people younger than oneself is a, an enormous privilege, and uh, I think that I've already left that. In other words, I, I haven't anything else I particularly want to give. Um, um, I've always thought the most important thing I ever did was to help to start the Black Studies program at Yale and to uh, teach introductory anthropology for about 30 years. Those were the most important things I did as a as an adult, and uh, I see them as my paying my society back for the privilege of teaching. Um, but I don't have anything else to. To give, and I, I, I don't know if you people, you guys know how you guys and lady know, know how old I am, but I'm an old man. <laughs> I'm still writing, but it's um, not anthropology. It's uh, just a, a promise I made. I'm writing, and um, I still enjoy life. I think I'm very fortunate, uh, I, but I really don't have anything to add to that. Doctor Mintz, um, I. Um, it's, I'm finding it very difficult to let you go off the phone because uh, <laughs> I have a million more questions for you, but I know that we have to wrap up. But I just want to ask one more, and that is um, in Tasting Food, Tasting Freedom, uh, which came mm-hmm. out in, uh, I think, 96, you have a, a, a wonderful essay in there about American cuisine. And you ask the question, is there an American cuisine? And if I remember correctly, I've been traveling and didn't get a chance to reread the essay, you conclude that with the answer no, and it's you know basically that if you go to a place like France, people can argue about cassoulet and my mother's cassoulet versus your mother's cassoulet, and they talk about food, they argue about food, it's important. And in the 90s, when you wrote the essay, you felt like we didn't have that here. And my question for you mm-hmm. is, what is it almost 20 years since um, with the rise of all of this kind of n- new interest in food and the farmer's market and all this kind of stuff, if you think mm-hmm. we're moving... And people, I do feel like people now are arguing about food a little bit. Um, do you ha- Have you changed your opinion on that? Well, I, you know, uh, I think that cuisines, real cuisines, begin in particular regions. Uh, what we call French cuisine is a kind of synthetic thing built out of dishes chosen from across the French nation. And so we know them from French restaurants where they always have crepe à mode de camp, and then they have a burgundy stew, beef stew, and so on. And when it became French cuisine was when it became France, and uh, then you have French cuisine. Um, the United States had regional cuisines in its very beginning, but they were very, very weak um, because the people who were cooking had no background and no particular background, and they came from different places, and they really couldn't put it together that way. I mean, someone listed the 10 most important or 10 most popular American foods, you know, ham and cheese sandwich, and barbecue, you know, that kind of a list. Um, and that's not a cuisine. It may be what people eat, but it's not a cuisine. Um, I think that it's wonderful that there are, these markets are growing, and I think it's terrific that we've got some 
uh, chefs taking food very seriously and going back to the natural ingredients. I think it's all great. Um, but I think that it's a very uphill fight, and I hope people continue to fight it. Um, we still can't get companies to put on their boxes um, the amount of sugar they have in them. They will tell you in grams, but they will not tell you in percentage. The only way you can find out where sugar stands in relation to other ingredients is the ingredients are listed in order of importance. So almost every breakfast cereal begins, um, now they're talking about, you know, whole grain. It begins with oats or oatmeal or some damn thing. And then the second ingredient is sugar and the third ingredient is molasses. We can't get them, the sugar people, to tell us how much sugar they're putting in stuff. And we can't because there's such a powerful lobby that the Food and Drug Administration is unwilling to do it. Every time they try, a couple senators visit them and tell them what lies ahead if they insist. Um, So our fight, if it is a fight, with the food industry is not only a, a difficult one, a hard one, but it seems it's going to be an endless one. I'm very much in favor of the uh, of the people who are trying to do this. I'm very supportive of them. It's one of the things I really do make a fuss about. But um, but I think it's it's going to be a hard struggle to do that. Um, if we could only get the bad things to happen all at the same time. If only 10,000 people would die the same day from obesity, or, then maybe we should get something to happen. But it's very hard to change. I'm very pessimistic about it. Very difficult to, to dent. Um, whether we can create a real American cuisine, well, we certainly can't create a real American cuisine until we are producing better food, food of better quality. Um, We've got to stop judging the food that we eat by the size of it or the color of it. Uh, Taste has to come in somewhere in that list of of features. So I think it's – I'm very pessimistic about making a significant change. Of course, I think, you know, upper-middle-class people are going to continue to eat at good restaurants and to raise their children on good food and all that. I think that will certainly – continue, but I think to create a a national cuisine, uh, to get most Americans to eat properly is good. It's a long way off still. So I'm an optimist about everything and a pessimist about a lot of the details. (laughs) Just like Antonio Gramsci. (laughs) Pardon me? Just like Antonio Gramsci. That's what he said. Optimist of the... (laughs) Optimist of the heart, pessimist I, I, of the I mind. I'll I, I tell you, for a long time, I was absolutely unwilling uh, to use the word, uh, what's his favorite word? Hegemony. hegemony. Yeah, I didn't use hegemony for years. Even though the Spaniards had hegemony in the New World, I simply would not use the world because I was so mad at, at, at Gramsci. But uh, yeah, he got a point. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't tell you how grateful we are for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Oh, it's very enjoyable. Anthropologist and author of Sweetness and Power, The Place of Sugar in Modern History, Dr. Sidney Mintz. 
You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient with me, Rebecca McEnroy, Raj Patel, and Tom Philpot. The Secret Ingredient is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, and engineered by David Alvarez. Find more shows, great articles, videos, links, and all kinds of information about Raj, Tom, and myself at thesecretingredient.org. And subscribe to The Secret Ingredient in iTunes. What an incredible conversation. I mean, I have to say, I was in tears when he was talking about his, you know, what he thinks he has done that's been most important to him. And as someone who is in, in the academy, th- thinking about the, the world that one leaves behind uh, and shaping minds and having people teaching in ways that are engaged in the world, I've, I found that unbearably moving. But I also am really grateful that he is reading people like Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, work on reparations, for example. I think that actually to have the word reparations in our discussion right now to think about, well, look, if, if we're interested in changing the food system um, after having studied sugar more than any other person really on uh, on Earth, he, he, he comes up with this idea that actually to redress the food system, we do need to be thinking systemically about remembering the past and doing something about it. And particularly in this moment in, uh, in American history and in world history, that's a really good idea to be walking away with. Yeah, I mean, and I think just to echo that, um, that these debates we have about food now and these these ideas about the way that sugar is way overused and it's causing all these health problems, which is undeniable, it when we limit the conversation just to that, and we could do a, we could have done a whole show on that. We could have done a whole show on the sugar industry and its power and this, you know the sort of sweetness industry that and its power that it exerts today. Um, and the whole sugar substitute industry, which I've written about, which is also really uh, interesting. Um, but all of that kind of uh, allows us to forget the, you know, literally millions of people who were enslaved and murdered to get us to the situation that we have now. And by doing that, we we paper over a lot of the other inequalities that remain from the same history because the same history obviously took place in the United States. We didn't grow sugar in the United States. The main uh, slave crop was cotton, uh, also some tobacco, but cotton was the main slave crop. And the legacy of that, as Tanessi Coates uh, shows in his essay, we've never dealt with, and we see it. We the fact that we haven't dealt with it. Uh, is rubbed in our faces every day now with the Confederate flag hanging over um, the capital in South Carolina at a time when there's massacres of uh, of African Americans and things like that. The fact that we haven't dealt with these things is is clear. And sweetness and power and Sidney Mintz's work is a reminder of just how devastating and awesome that story is. Awesome in the literal meaning of the word, not meaning great, Um, but, you know, literally awe-inspiring. Raj, you wanted to add something. Uh, uh, podcast listeners will will know that we're 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 talking about the uh, the flag over South Carolina. By the time this reaches uh, you, hopefully that flag will be down and burned. Uh, but um, uh, just one thing to note, of course, that also j- as we record, um, Tom is just back from New York uh, with his 2015 Gerald Loeb Award uh, for his amazing piece "California Goes Nuts," um, and uh, just wanted to congratulate him and make sure everyone reads that after they've read sweetness and power and given it to at least 10 people because it's oh, an incredible book 
please don't, <laughs> please don't read it after Sweetness and Power because that is a completely unfair comparison. Hey there, it's Nathan Bernier with a quick pitch for my podcast, KUT Weekend. All the reporting on Central Texas that comes out of our Austin newsroom. Updated Friday afternoons. Check it out.